and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, including the cult hits Lucifer, Hellblazer, Transmetropolitan. And today we are covering Lucifer issues one through three. Yes, the beginning of the Lucifer ongoing. Now previously, whew, we're coming into this with some baggage. Yes, Satan, the Lord of Lies, has a lot of baggage. <laughs> Okay, so in Sandman, Lucifer, the Lord of Hell, quit his job out of boredom and went to L.A. where he owns a nightclub called Lux, along with a demon who's in love with him named Mazakine. Yeah, Dream cut his wings off. Yeah, that's important. He had Dream cut his wings off with Mazakine's knife. Yep. And previously in Sandman Presents Lucifer, Lucifer did a job for heaven, specifically for the angel Amenadiel who hired him to do the job against his own better judgment. And right. his reward was a letter of passage. Right. We don't know exactly what the letter of passage does, or what he wants it to when do. it allows passage to? Yeah. Well, I, I assumed it was how he got into the cabaret in this issue. Is that not? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very exclusive club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a MacGuffin that he's in possession of. That's the important bit. Something or other of angels carry thee to thy scantily clad women. Yeah. So here we go. Lucifer, number one, a six-card spread. All the issues in this story arc are entitled a six-card spread, no subtitles. Today's issues are written by Mike Carey, pencils by Chris Weston, inks by Weston and James Hodgkins, colors and separations by Daniel Vazo. Covers are by Duncan Figredo. They're lettered by Ellie DeVille, edited by Shelley Roberg, with assistant editor Will Dennis, and feature characters created by Gaiman Keith and Dringenberg. I just want to point out that was very frustrating to me because that's not how you fucking title a comic book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you feel like you are owed titles for parts one, two, and three? Yes. <laughs> no, I don't just feel like I am. I am. It's part of the fucking social contract. <laughs> the comic book has a fucking title. If you want to be extra, you can give it a different title on the cover. <laughs> you know, that's the thing people do. <laughs> Basically, I'm entitled to at least... At least one title between one and three. <laughs> you remember that uh, X-Men issue that had, like, a train bearing down on the camera and it Beast and Bishop, like, peering out of the train and there was a bunch of monsters behind them and it goes, Death Train! Yeah, I love that <laughs> issue. I have no fucking clue what happens in that issue, but that's a pretty cool cover. Well, so, basically, Mr. Sinister is fucking with them. Okay. And somebody, I can't remember who, somebody's spying on Bishop and he's going like a little crazy. Okay. Yeah. And maybe Dark Beast is in the mix too. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. But do they end up on a subterranean train full of monsters? Like in Resident Evil Zero? Yes. Okay. Where the fuck were we? (laughs) Yes. If you have a story arc, if your comic book is part of a larger story arc, the story arc needs a title, but the issue also needs a title. All right. That is how these things are done. Even if you half-ass it, like Neil Gaiman did, where the title is just such and such chapter one. Oh, that's so, okay. That's fine. But but here they don't even say part. It's just no. This is still a six-card spread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He just writes the he just writes six-card spread as the title of all three issues. Yeah, that's definitely uh, writing for the trade kind of work. So on this cover by Duncan Figredo, we have. Lucifer, he is standing up against a stone wall, and the stone wall is carved with all kinds of symbols, including 
pentagrams and angels. It also seems to be spattered with blood. And he's holding up his two hands in the light like he's... Uh, what he's literally doing is creating a shadow puppet of wings behind him on the wall. That guy, you know, he got rid of his wings and he's regretted it ever since. <laughs> I also like that there's a graffiti of a crown directly over the shadow of his head. Oh, that's cool. So, we open up on... Susano O. Yes, Susano is visiting Remiel. Remiel and Duma remember the two angels who now rule hell. And Susano O, he's a Japanese Shinto god. Yeah, he's the Japanese god of thunder. Loki tried to fuck over. Yeah, that's right. And and Sandman put a stop to it. Yes. So they are in hell, and Susano O asks Remiel if he sometimes consults with Lucifer on the work of running hell. Remiel replies. Never. Which we know to be bullshit. <laughs> well, he has tried consulting with him, but Lucifer has not exactly been amenable to those conversations. Yeah, that's true. Lucifer has been unhelpful. Yeah. As is his want. Now, Remiel goes on to say that he and Duma have done quite well without Lucifer's advice. And that's when we turn to this beautiful... Terrible. Yeah. Uh, full page and then some of hell. It is shithole. We were talking about Conan earlier. There's some guys on a wheel of pain. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I thought. That's the wheel of pain. There's a demon here who looks like an old carnival barker with a mouth for a crotch. There is a demon with a clock for a face whipping a cartoonist. Yeah, I was pretty amused that one of the guys is drawing comic books. That's, well, that's his hell. That seems like a pretty clear, like, that's like a deadline joke, right? Yeah. Like yeah. The, the illustrator of this issue is constantly tortured by deadlines and he put that into the comic yeah also the hollywood sign is visible in the background i can't make out the vowel here it might say hollywood i mean one assumes yeah it is impressive my mother's realm is not so vast nor so open says susanoo lucifer designed it so freedom is his obsession yeah who is susanoo's mother i think that would be izanami okay and she presumably is in charge of the Shinto Land of the Dead? I think so. At least in the context of this comic book. Okay. Now, it turns out that Susanoo is here to buy something for which he is paying 100 million souls. Right. He has actually come as an envoy of Izanami. Mm -hmm. So, right, presumably the goddess of the Japanese underworld because she has these hundred million souls to offer mm -hmm. in exchange for Lucifer's wings. What makes you think I have them? It is known that Dream of the Endless severed the wings at Lord Lucifer's request. It is known that they remained here. That happened in Sandman number 23. And why does the mistress of the windowless rooms wish to acquire them? My ignorance shames me beyond bearing. I am only her envoy. All right, so... We're going to have to come back to that, because it's not going to come up again in these comic books. Oh, it does a little bit. It does? Well, I'll show you when we get there. Okay. I'll point it out. But it seems like Remiel kind of agrees, in theory. Okay. That brings us to Lucifer. Chris Weston's drawing of Lucifer. Yeah, he's a little bit more clean-cut and tidy than I think we're used to seeing him. Yeah. Not that he ever looked like a sloppy fellow before, but he has an exceptionally neat haircut. Yes, that's right. He's got almost white blonde hair. He's got a fancy white jacket. And as depicted here, he seems to have sort of 
black shadows around his eyes. So we open on some narration that reminds us what is up with Lucifer, as he is just finishing his breakfast. He has, of course, in front of him the letter of passage. His breakfast of an omelette and sliced pastorma. He's a man of wealth and taste. I mean, an omelette, that's just eggs. Yeah. I suppose he could have put the meat in the omelette. That's how a lot of people do it. Yeah, but he said an omelette and pastorma. Well, yeah, I'm, he didn't, but he could have. Yeah, but that's for plebes. I see. <laughs> that's how you know he's a man of wealth and taste, is that he takes his meat separate from his omelette. So it turns out that Lucifer is one move away from Endgame, as he puts it, but he's not sure he wants to act on this letter of passage that he has. This seems a little too easy. To rid himself of a minor nuisance, he gave me an object of inconceivable power. The letter seems genuine, but if it were me, I would have made sure it could never be used. So he is going to Hamburg to pull Melios out from under his rock and ask him for a six-card spread. He says ask him very politely, which is not what he does. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. The six-card spread, this is a tarot reading. He wants to use Melios's cards to tell the future and figure out if it's a good idea to use the letter. Right, it will become clear that a six-card spread is a tarot reading. And so we cut to Melios, although it may not be clear immediately that that's who it is. This is a bookshop in Hamburg called Der Taschenturm. Mr. Weiss, what should I do with that stuff that came from Zwemmer's? Do you want me to... Uh, I'm sorry, Carl, the Zwemmer books, yes. Could you check them against the invoice and then put them straight on the shelves? Yes, Mr. Weiss. So, guess I'm doing German accents. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Melios is Mr. Weiss. He owns this bookshop. He has a part-time employee named Carl, who is German. Melios is, of course, not German. He is from the Silver City of Heaven. Right, although that did not become obvious to me right away, but we'll get to it. What does become obvious right away, basically on the third panel that we see this guy, is that he is haunted by visions. Yeah, there's a wolf and a man fighting in one part of the bookshop, a blind woman with a whip in another, and we can see that these are kind of ghostly. They're opaque, but their color is a bit pale. Yeah, and one of them is standing so that their leg just kind of goes right through Carl. Yeah. The bossinos reveals itself only to those it wishes to address, so Melios speaks in a murmur, his lips barely moving. Do you think I'm afraid of Lucifer? Bossinos is a Greek word. It means a touchstone used to verify gold. It also means an implement of torture. Why not? You're afraid of us. So afraid you keep us bound in a box of oak and iron. Now those of us who are familiar with the tarot may pick up at this point that at least some of the bossinos are clearly figures from tarot. This last line has been delivered by a man being hanged upside down, the hanged man. It is at this point that Jayesh enters the scene. Jayesh appears to be a young man of Southeast Asian descent. Mm -hmm. And he has a somewhat strained conversation with Carl. Yeah, that's right. He's sort of trying to engage with Carl, and Carl isn't really engaging with him. Right, exactly. We also learn that Jayesh is Melios's protege. He is reading some really hard books at Melios's behest and discussing them. Yeah, Melios wants him to read Marcuse's Critique of Freud. Jayesh kind of tries to opt out, but Melios won't really let him. A man gains his first measure of wisdom when he admits his ignorance. But you took that step a long time ago, Jayesh. It's time to have some faith in yourself. Yeah, well, you know how it is. I get distracted too easily. 
and Carl is in the background there. Yeah. He's distracted by... Uh... <laughs> and Melios is also distracted because a giant spectral wolf is jumping him. Doesn't stop him from talking. Yep. Anyway, Melios hands Jayesh the book. He gets rid of him because he's expecting visitors. Sends Carl home as well. He puts up a sign on the door, which I looked up this German. It says, I'm sorry, we're closed. You'll have to read the yellow pages. That's pretty funny. I thought that it was a lot of words for a sign to just say closed. Yeah. I can't help but be reminded by this bookstore of Aziraphale from Good Omens, the angel who runs a bookstore. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, and, and he collects weird Bibles, which is kind of sort of similar to what Melios is doing here. And he also has a tendency to put signs on the door to basically make it as hard as possible for anybody to come in and actually shop at his store because he just wants to keep the books. <laughs> yeah, I've been to comic shops like that. <laughs> Jayesh makes his way back to his parents' store, which is just across the way, I think. Yeah, and I found this rather galling. It turns out that he left the place unattended with the key in the till. Yeah, that was a mistake. He is too easily distracted. Oh, this is a bummer. I still have several minutes left on my shift. And time is just moving like molasses. Oh, what if I go to the bookstore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so some hooligans have made off with some stuff. Jayesh immediately takes of the proffered jobs from his father, the one that does not involve staying in the store and manning it, which specifically is to go upstairs and see to their lodger. Everything needs doing. The cold cabinet, the pricing, the rubbish... And our so ladylike and clean and respectable lodger has asked for a bloody wake-up call at two in the afternoon. Oh, great. I'll do that. I mean, I'll do that first. And this is when we are introduced to a character named Jill Presto's Tits. <laughs> uh, yes. Jill is sitting there nearly naked on her bed. She seems totally undisturbed by Jayesh's presence in the room. Maybe that's because he's gay, or maybe that's just because it's Jill's personality. Right, and that's something that we learn in the course of this conversation, that Jayesh is gay and she knows it. Seems to be one of the rare people who knows it. So her nudity does serve the story here in that it establishes that they have a relationship where she doesn't care if he walks in on her changing. But it also really struck me as like, this is a vertigo number one. Let's establish that we can have naked people if we want. <laughs> right. From a poster on her wall, we can tell that Jill is the assistant to a magician named Hugo. You wear a padded bra? Why would you need to do that? Why else? Because lots of guys have a tit fixation. Mostly they don't even look you in the eye until they've checked out how you're built. But you, I mean, you've got a perfect figure. Thanks, Jay. I'm touched. I mean, you're as bent as... But I guess it's the thought that counts. Jill asks if Jayesh has asked Carl out yet. I almost did, but I chickened out. I mean, what if he says no? He works just two doors away, and I'm in and out of the shop all the time. It could get pretty uncomfortable. Isn't walking around with a permanent hard-on pretty uncomfortable, too? <laughs> yeah, so she urges him to up and do it, and then she makes a joke about anyone who can't get laid in St. Pauli isn't trying. St. Pauli is a neighborhood in Hamburg, mm -hmm. which is where they are. That is our segue into what Lucifer is up to, having just arrived in St. Pauli. Yeah, and he is walking past a flock of prostitutes. Hey, mister, you want something a bit fresher? No, thank you. You have nothing that I want. You don't know until you've tried. Come on, mister. When did you last get your pipe cleaned? Go home now, Sigrid Mahler, and you may be in time for your father's funeral. 
Oh, oh God, Papa. She runs off. What a dick. Did he just kill that lady's father? I don't think he killed her. I think he just knows that her father has just died. Well, that's an awful fucking big coincidence. <laughs> well, this brings me to something that bothers me. And I don't want to nitpick, but here it is. Because we've seen before that Lucifer seems to have some degree of omniscience, both about events that are occurring elsewhere and in the future. Remember, in the Kindly Ones, he sang a man a song which he said is appropriate given the way your evening ends. And he sang sit down your rock in the boat, and then later that evening the guy drowned. Right. So, can angels just tell the future automatically? Because if so, the fact that this whole arc is about getting some cards to tell the future with is a little weird. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't entirely make sense. It's almost as if... It's almost as if his powers are whatever the plot requires, and the limitations of his powers are... Also you know, what the plot requires. Right, whenever the book needs him to not be able to get something easily. So Mazikeen says, something. And this is where he lives? He is an angel. Oh, you decoded it. Mm -hmm. Good for you. He's a historian. He lives among the humans in order to chronicle them. Although it's perhaps also a declaration of neutrality. This will be easier if we're not interrupted, Mazikeen. If any bibliophiles should pass this way, persuade them to keep on going. All right, so Lucifer interrupts Melios at work. Lucifer says he is not here for a book. He's here for a game of cards. Back in the shop, Jill is on her way out. She borrows a pepperoni thing and a stuffed olive. Mm -hmm. Jayash's dad says that she can add it to her rent. And then heading out of the store, she bumps right into Mazakin, who is standing guard outside the bookshop. Right, and she mistakes Mazakin for a performer. Yeah, a couple of things we should probably note about Mazakin at this point. One, she's wearing, like, a robe tied with a rope, very old-fashioned outfit, along with a, like, little red riding hood hood. Yeah. The second, Mazakin, the left side of her face is completely rotten and, and missing, so she wears a mask over it, like an opera mask, like the Phantom of the Opera's mask. Right. Jill doesn't notice the rotten face thing, just the mask, which she thinks is cool. Yeah, and she hands a pass to the cabaret show. Mm-hmm. Satisfaction guaranteed. Hugo's a shit, but he gives good magic. Lucifer obnoxiously muses on the kind of books that Melios collects. You care nothing about my collection, Lucifer. There's no need to pretend. On the contrary, there's something queasily fascinating about your collection. Every inane speculation the human species has made about its origins, every perverse code I wish they've ever tried to live, every ham-fisted hymn. I don't think anyone has tried before to scale the fortress of truth by building a siege tower of banalities. So, Melios collects basically two things, religion and laws. You, you talk about truth. You recognize none except that of your own will. So, Lucifer is being, I think, more of a dick than we've ever seen him mm -hmm. <laughs> in this issue. Yeah, I mean, he's he's openly here to threaten Melios and get what he wants from him, no matter what. Right. He didn't ask him very politely, and maybe he should have. He wants to carry out a divination using the deck, the bossanos. Yeah, and it's at this point that we see all of the tarot figures uh, in their ghostly forms assembled behind Melios, and this is kind of when it became clear to me that what's haunting him is the cards. Right. You picked up on that a little earlier than I did, uh, which is fine. Melios notes that, as far as he knows, Lucifer has never experienced doubt. Even when you plunged us all into war. I make my own choices, as you've done, as everyone does. 
I'm looking for information, not a blessing. Lucifer shows Melios the letter of passage that he has with God's imprimatur on it. Lucifer, I can't let you consult them. I don't know what the deck's capable of. I don't trust it anymore. Look around you, Melios. Your whole life is flammable. Saying no to me is an option you just don't have. Yeah, so that's pretty blunt. Melios may be pretty damn hard to kill as an angel, but he's got something he cares about, his shop full of awesome old books. Lucifer says he'll be back in two hours, and if the deck's not ready, he'll use his entrails instead to perform a divination. And now, some Nazis. Right, Carl is on lookout while his friends beat an immigrant guy to death. Bad choices, Carl. Yeah. One of these guys, he seems to be the leader, Gunter, he tells the guy that they'll stop beating him if he asks in German. Right. I'm not entirely sure if... It, it seems like this all must actually be translated German, but then some phrases are just also in German. I think we're supposed to assume that everybody's mostly speaking English. Okay, um, they're speaking actual English, which is why the German is set aside. Right, and that makes sense too, because it's likely that Jayesh and his father and Jill would all be able to speak English, and maybe less likely that they'd all know German. Yeah, that's right. We, we'll learn that uh, Jill Presto is American originally. Right, and Jayesh's father speaks with British slang. Yeah, okay. That's a good point. As they're walking away from the scene of the crime here, Gunter points out to Carl that he was lookout, again, without being asked. That he's basically only been lookout on their crimes so far. You're in or you're out. We don't need a fan club. They spray-painted an X over the dying body of the immigrant that they beat up, mm -hmm. and they drew a little speech bubble that says, Rouse? That means out. Okay. So, like, get out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Carl is in a precarious position. He's a racist douchebag, but he's being asked to do more as a racist douchebag, to really commit to it. Now we cut to the Needle's Eye Cabaret, the club where Jill works. Or performs, I should say. Because she works for Hugo, not for the club, really, right? Yes. Well, kind of. As we'll see, she has a bit of a side hustle that she's trying to get into. Mm. She wants a side job singing in the club. And she wants to get that from Mr. Metz? Mr. Metterlink. Metterlink, okay. I think Metz is a nickname. Okay. Short for Metterlink. Hello, Jill. Hugo was looking for you. He seemed pretty pissed out. That's pissed off, Lottie. Never mind Hugo. What about Mr. Metterlink? Is he in yet? I don't think so. Why? Jill explains that she wants a solo job, and then Hugo can kiss my ring, she says. How would it be if Hugo just rings your neck? Oh, uh, yeah, maybe, but my idea has more immediate visual appeal. So Hugo... Hugo is her direct boss, and he's not cool with the fact that she wants to branch out on her own. He also thinks that she's what's holding their performance back. I ask you to come an hour early, Peterson, for practice, because every mistake you do looks bad for me. I don't want to be working bloody hamburger cabaret until I retire, you know? Hamburger in this context seems to mean of the city of Hamburg. Ah, okay. Not meaning it's dinner theater. Uh, I mean, maybe. I guess two things can be true. But that was what I took away from it, anyhow. That's fair. So they practice a trick. In this trick, they basically conjure a dove or some other kind of bird under the, you know, the lid of a covered plate. Jill is supposed to whisk the cover off and there's a the live bird. Yeah. yeah. 
And one, two, three, fly. Satisfied? No. Smoother. One smooth movement. Christ. Hey, Hugo, when I do my solo act, do you think I look cool in, like, a mask over just one half of my face? Meanwhile, Lucifer finds something disconcerting. He thinks fleetingly of his wings. Nostalgia or premonition? Yeah, now, in Sandman Presents Lucifer, in the miniseries, he grabbed a bird and used its feathers for sympathetic magic to conjure himself a pair of wings temporarily. Here he catches a bird, but that's not what he's up to. New variables are being added to a situation already complicated. He has to act before action becomes impossible. This is undignified, he says to the bird that he's captured, but in the absence of anything better, you'll have to do. Now, this is my favorite part of the comic book, as Melios is heading down to the basement of his shop. And this would probably have been more effective if they had managed to spare a full-page spread for it, but as we see the vast subterranean library under the shop, this is the narration we get. There is a cellar room in the plans, if anyone ever wanted to look. Twelve feet by fifteen, with a small utilities cupboard. He could fly down, of course. The stairwell is wide enough for his wings if he chose to manifest them. That is when it became clear to me that he is an angel. Right. There is no dust. He is the only one who ever comes here, and he does not shed skin cells, so there is nothing out of which dust could be made. I want to nerd out about this for a second. He does not shed skin cells. Yeah. Unlike Lucifer, who has chosen to maintain a youthful appearance, Melios has allowed himself to become old and wrinkled-looking. Yes. So... His skin seems to be following the normal rules of skin. <laughs> Seemingly by choice. But, I, I mean, maybe we're to understand that his appearance is just a sort of mystical reflection of his feelings about himself. Could be. It's not that his skin is wrinkling because he's actually mortal. Right. And, like, actually following the normal human laws of physics. It's just that he feels old, so he looks old. Seems that way, yeah. He feels that way or he chooses to look that way. He's apparently, like, you know, indestructible enough that he doesn't shed any skin cells. What he has cannot be called skin. Well, skin just means the top layer. Of course he has skin. All right, I guess that's a way of thinking about it. <laughs> so he goes all the way to the bottom of this giant library, and there is a box. And the voices that rise from this place are not even remotely human. You've come, then, to murder us. Yes. The hanged man says, We're what you made us, Melios. If we're flawed, it's because we express the cracks and seams in you. And if you end us, you will have to answer to the Lord Lucifer. So now as Melios faces the cards, he realizes it's too late that he's been maneuvered to this point. There's a hot metal smell. There's a sound that drags itself like a dull blade across his ears. And we see the cards sort of explode all over him. And there's also like a bullet hole in his forehead. Yeah, they do something. They overwhelm him, and he looks dead. There's what looks like a bullet hole in his head, and a trail of blood. Oh, Melios, you've let your rabid little children off the leash. And that is the end of the first issue. I'm not entirely clear on what happened here. Is Lucifer just divining using the entrails of this bird, or did he actually use it for, like, some kind of sympathy where he injured Melios to distract him to allow the cards to escape? I don't think that he wants the cards to escape. Because he wants to be able to perform a tarot reading. He just them. wants to get them from Melios. He doesn't benefit from them blasting their way out of the bookshop. Right. I think he started... I think he's doing the divination with the bird entrails because he's suspicious about Remiel's about to give his wings away. Okay. 
But yeah, seemingly because he's doing the divination at this precise moment, he is able to pick up on the fact that the Bassanos have broken free. Okay, so the cover of issue number two, we see what appears to be Jill, and she's just pissed off Gambit. Uh, <laughs> something fierce. But also, I guess Kitty Pride is touching her? <laughs> okay, so what we have here is all of the cards of the Bosnos flying at Jill and embedding themselves in her face. Like, her face is being pierced by these cards. We can see them cutting through her teeth and face and chin and stuff. And it is... It really reminds me of one of the grosser horror movie kills that I ever accidentally watched. What's that? I think this is in... Sometimes they come back again. Okay. Which is like, I'm not recommending the movie here. <laughs> okay. But there is a bit in that movie where bad guys have kidnapped a teenage girl and kill her by telekinetically hurling tarot cards through her head. I see. I could see how this would remind you of that, but we don't actually see any damage. Well, right. And, and, and in context, this is more the cards entering Jill's person than actually piercing her. Right, yeah. Like I said, Kitty Pride, she does seem to be... It's either that she's intangible or they are. They're kind of going through her, but not like in a in a gory way. We don't see any blood, but she seems to be in pain. Or she's just alarmed, which you would be too. <laughs> <laughs> Legit, okay. Alright, so the cards are loose on Hamburg. Yeah, and we get our title here. A six-card spread! With the words, like, flying all over the place. Again, I do not approve. Anyway, as Melios is trying to haul himself back up the many, many stairs to his bookshop, he's too exhausted to use his wings after losing his battle with the Bossanos. He's having a flashback. Yes, he is drawing a Lucifer in order to make a card called the Lightbringer. Right, Lucifer is posing for this picture. And it becomes clear in this dialogue, if we didn't pick it up already, that Melios is one of the rebel angels with Lucifer. We're fighting for freedom, Melios. Freedom to define ourselves. Freedom from the tyranny of predestination. As an artist, isn't that your fight too? I do not fight, but it may be that I can help you in another way, Lucifer. I visited Destiny of the Ane Uteloi recently. He was not cordial, but he allowed me to examine his book. Yeah, so... He has hung out with Destiny of the Endless. Right. You're incredible. You're afraid to fight with us? But you'd beard the Endless in pursuit of your art. One day this obsession will destroy you. Now, Carl, meanwhile, is getting a tattoo. Can you get, uh, words with that? Yeah, sure. The standard design has FC St. Pauli forever, but you can have whatever you like. I was thinking of maybe Deutsche Sieg, with the Deutsche on top and the Sieg underneath. Oh, right, Nazi chic. Well, whatever gets it up for you, I guess. You want to put that high up on your arm, though, to the cops it's a sign that says, roll me over. Don't I get a local anesthetic? Sorry, for 200 marks, you don't even get a pin that says, I was brave at the tattoo parlor today. Ah! Ah! Scheiße! Swear box. You'd better save the choicest ones for later. It gets worse when the nerves wake up properly. Yeah, so he's getting the tattoo. He's not handling it well. He's surprised by the amount of pain involved. And in fact, he stops the tattooist before he's done. I'll finish it another time, okay? There's always marker, I suppose. And he is disgusted with himself as he sees that his tattoo doesn't even say Deutsche Sieg. It says Doi Sieg. And the Emperor tarot card catches his eye. But why wear it when you can be it? You've got the seeds of greatness. Gunther knows that. That's why he's so hard on you. He's testing you. 
That's what this is all about, son. You've got to pay the price of admission. You said so yourself. Be decisive, stern, and swift. Be magnificent. In Carl's fantasy, he's sitting on a throne made of bones wearing a Nazi uniform, and the other three guys in his cell are kneeling down in front of him. I mean, if you have a throne of bones, I'm just saying, is there any symbol worse than a skull? <laughs> are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah, so the cards are loose and they are wreaking havoc all over. I'm really reminded of, like, Hellblazer number one. You remember when the Hunger Demon oh, was on the loose? It's totally Hellblazer number one. Yeah. We're cutting to all these scenes of different people encountering the Bosnos and being tempted in their own specific way. Who drew that issue? Hellblazer number one? Yeah. Not not Toddleman. John Ridgway. Yeah, it was John Ridgway. That's who it was. His art was so fucking gross. In, like, a good way. That dude just starts, like, eating that other dude's hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the people tempted, in fact, is Hugo. This is the spirit of glory, I guess. He's gonna be glorious with his magic and stuff. The siren song is about the show that he will perform tonight. It'll be the greatest performance of his life. He's ready. His craft is perfect. He will join the canon and sit with Harry and David in glory forever. I assume that's Harry Houdini and David Copperfield? No, I think it's the company that sells pears. This is, a, this is his second choice of employment. <laughs> <laughs> At last, that would be the world's greatest magician. And then they would finally allow me to sell the pears. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Lucifer has kind of an amusing line here as he finds Mazakine sharpening her knife in the park in Hamburg. There are places in any town where sharpening a knife will pass without comment. Generally speaking, public parks are a poor bet, except maybe in New York City. And then she replies by saying something. I felt I must be ready, Lord, if we must fight the cards. Okay. Then what does he say? Well, Lucifer says that they need to find the cards, not fight them. And in fact, they're skittish. They need to take them by surprise a little bit. So he uses some leaves and a ritual with some blood to basically track them. Yeah, and he's promising Mazikeen that he's about to hunt Melios. He's being a real dick to his old friend. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jill finds Metterlink, or Metz. He is having sex. Yeah, or at least a steamy makeout session does look like his pants are still on. Ha! Caught you. Oops. Sorry, Sola. Sola excuses herself to say that she's going to go practice her number. And Jill is, like, very dismissive. Given that she's a stripper, she was getting plenty of practice right here, wasn't she? So she's pretty dismissive of the idea that Sola can ever kind of do anything except dance. And this is, this is an ugly side to Jill's character that we basically see whenever Sola is around. She is... Not supportive of her fellow woman in the least. And she really looks down her nose at her for being, you know, a sex worker. Yeah. Um, an erotic entertainer. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. I think maybe, maybe it makes sense for Jill in that, like, she is proud of not working with her body. At least to the extent that she doesn't, because she does, she's a magician's assistant who works in a skimpy costume. Right. Um, so, so she's kind of proud of not having to do that for herself, and that's why she's got a certain degree of open contempt for Sola. Yeah, I don't like it. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. She's kind of a jerk to Sola. Jill asks Metterlink about getting a solo singing gig, but he says that he's got some nasty divorce stuff going on. Hold on there, bald eagle. Lottie told me Petra served you those papers three weeks ago. So why are you bringing them up now? 
You used your private life to change the subject on me, Metz, for about the fifth time. Now give me a straight answer. The straight answer, it turns out, is that she's not that good a singer or a dancer. He pours a little bit of liqueur of some kind into his coffee and ends up wearing it. <laughs> oh, that's true. Course? You want to see course? Yeah, so, so as he has rejected her entreaty for a bigger part of the show, she quits in a huff. Right, she storms out, and he demands, go into the office and type up a termination letter, and leave some spaces for adjectives. <laughs> I kind of like that. That is a good line. Okay, now Carl happens into Jayesh's father's store. Jayesh's dad thinks that Carl is here to cause trouble, so Jayesh takes the job of chasing him out, but he doesn't really chase him out so much. Do you have any antiseptic ointment? I cut my arm and it's swollen up. And oh fuck, Jayesh thinks. The hairs in his ear, the sliding of that muscle in his arm. And he thinks he'll never, if he doesn't do it now. Carl, I was wondering if um you... Well, you know, if you'd like to come out for a drink later. Ha! That's funny, you know, after a day like this. Yeah, sure, a drink. Why not? Really? Yes. Then maybe you'll give me some fucking peace. Listen, Jayesh, I've got friends that'll literally fucking kill me if they see us together. Meet me at the back of the shop at ten, not on the street. So, as Carl leaves, his father says that he doesn't like Carl. He is a rough element, and a racist. He has a foul tongue. Yeah, and hairy ears. Oh, Jayesh. Bad decisions, man. Yeah, it's not gonna work out that well for Jayesh. So, Melios finally makes it near the top of the library to find Lucifer waiting for him. I was beginning to wonder if you'd make it. Those last 20 flights nearly finished you. Yeah, he's really a dick in these three issues. We fought. They they broke my concentration and struck me down. And now I can't heal the wound. Lucifer, they're free. They've escaped from me. Lucifer agrees, and that's why he's here. Because they could still be captured in the box in which they were originally held. If, for example, some kind of... A plucky elementary school girl and her friends were to use their magic powers to capture the escaped cards. Is that card captor Sakura? That's the joke I was making. Nice. <laughs> so to solve that problem, Lucifer crushes the box. <laughs> he does not want the boss nose for captured. I wasn't trying to set them free. I wanted to kill them. You must know that. What should I do with you, Milios? I need something quick but unforgettable. You disobeyed me. That's the issue as I see it. Melios goes on to say that he's dedicated his immortal life to chronicling humanity, and that seems to be why the cards caught the scent of humanity. I'm worse than a fool. I suppose it's because we don't breathe that we put so much of ourselves into our tools. From one point of view, you've already punished yourself enough, so don't see this as punishment. See this as an honest critique of your project. He says, touching one of Melios's books. What have you done, Lucifer? Please, tell me. You have a fine mind, Melios. Proceed by observation and inference. Now we are introduced to Innocence. Innocence doesn't start with a with a D. D? You know, like death, delirium, dream. <laughs> innocence? That doesn't fit. Oh yeah, fair. Innocence is not one of the endless, but she is one of the bossinos, one of the cards. And she's wandering the the streets of St. Pauli, which as we've learned is something of a red light district, or at least it was in 1997. Yeah, she's wandering the streets just saying creepy-ass shit to people. You know, living her best life. Yeah, basically the idea is that, like, when exposed to her, to the concept of innocence, people remember how much innocence they've lost, and it freaks them all the way the fuck out. 
Shit, why would a man poke his own eyes out? He put his eyes out because he didn't want to see. Do you want to read that incredible over-the-top narration that you were pointing out earlier? Yeah, should I read it in like a Mike Hammer voice? Absolutely. There's a trilling in the wires, a high inhuman sound. A million cats are mewling in a million hypothetical boxes. A million triggers are pulled. Destiny rides on the bullets. <laughs> That's really something. <laughs> That's fucking incredible. So Jayesh is out back of the shop to meet Carl. Jayesh, over here. Have you been waiting long? You remember those friends I mentioned? They wanted to meet you, so I thought I'd bring them along. Uh, yeah, and it goes really badly from here. And Gunther gives his whole don't-you-speak-German thing again. He has a real bug up his butt about this. Yeah. Back in the shop, Melios figures out what Lucifer has done to him. Yeah, the words are dripping off the pages of all his books. The fragile lines like opened arteries of thought run off their pages and pool on the floor. They've been struck down by a hemorrhagic plague. Yeah, and he cries out in anguish in the center of all of his ruined books as rivers of ink flow off of all of the pages. Too cruel, even for you, he comments. He is wrong. Lucifer is a massive dickhole. Yeah, now the Nazis are beating the shit out of Jayesh. It's really not a good scene at all. Yeah, should we talk about the specifics? We probably need to mention the horrible thing that they do here. Yeah, we don't actually see them do it, but Gunther breaks a bottle against the brick wall, gives it to Carl, and instructs him to sodomize Jayesh with it. Right, and we do see him pull back the bottle soaked in blood, so he did it. That's, that's fucking horrible, man. Don't be a goddamn Nazi. No. I mean, do you think that, does that bother you as being in the comic book? Do you think that's gratuitous? No, it's, no, it's just, it's just awful. They're awful people, so they do awful things, but mm. it's, you know. Jill is having herself an afternoon drink in a bar. In movies, when you're down, the barman listens to all your problems. Dispenses homespun wisdom while he's cleaning glasses with a checkered cloth. But this isn't her country, and there isn't anyone who knows her fucking name. <laughs> Joseph her monologue also sounds a lot like Mike Hammer. I, just, I think I've decided that Mike Hammer is the narrator <laughs> of this particular comic book. If not, the entire Lucifer series. You know? Yeah. We'll <laughs> that was a reference to Cheers, was it not? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. This is a bar, but nobody knows her name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is where we learn that Jill is American, that she came from Pittsburgh to try to make it. Which surprised me quite a bit. Hey, girl, you've got star quality, remember? You didn't come all the way from Pittsburgh just to roll over and beg when some sweat-stained, flea-pit whore runner snaps his fingers. Wait, Metterlink is an editor? <laughs> Do you want another drink, Fraulein? Nah, when you start giving pep talks to your reflection, it's probably time to quit. Just point me to the toilets. In the toilets, she encounters... She's getting changed, incidentally. I think she's always been wearing the costume under her coat, because she was wearing it before she left. Well, okay. She's not getting changed, she's getting ready. Yeah, yeah, she has decided to go back. I guess the show must go on. And Innocence wanders in. Hello, you're Jill Presto, aren't you? The cabaret star. Hey, aren't you a little young to be in here? Oh, don't worry. I'm here with friends. We're coming to see your act tonight. We're really looking forward to it. 
Jilt points out that the cabaret is adults only and is understandably shocked that this apparently seven-ish girl knows who an adult cabaret star is. Yeah, and she gives her a tarot reading, except that this is nine cards instead of six, and they are all death. I don't think that's how you do a tarot reading. <laughs> I think James Bond had a deck like that. <laughs> that is one of the creepier Bond seductions of all time. So weird. <laughs> Yeah, and Innocence points out, however, that the death card is not death, it's change. And something's about to change. What dies is just the part of you you don't need anymore. Lucifer is also drinking in a bar. He bemoans that twice he's tried to walk out on God, walk out on the plan, and found himself simply recast in another role, in another form of predestination. But his omniscience only works because there are no alternatives. I see that now, and I have conceived a revolution that may surprise even him. Oh, you know what? This is the same bar, because that's the same bartender. Oh, okay. Mazakin asks if it's time to go after the Bassanos, but he says, We can't move until they're all together in one place. They've been window shopping, and now I think they've decided to buy. Back in the bathroom, Innocence flips the cards at Jill, and they all kind of swarm towards her, as we saw on the cover. Holy fuck! It's holy, yes. Fucking appears elsewhere in the equation. Yeah, and all of the cards enter Jill's form. Here we see... Innocence last of all. Yes. This is a fairly bad piece of art, which is disappointing because it's a pretty good concept for a piece of art. <laughs> yeah. Jill sprawled out on the ground in apparent pain as all of the faces of the Bosnos, all of the cards' images are tattooed across her. Yeah, it's... The art is not executed super well on this page, and it's kind of difficult to tell what's going on. But, yeah, it appears that the Bassanos have kind of taken her as their physical form. That brings us to Lucifer number three, a six-card spread. Fucking goddammit. I like this cover a lot better than the previous two, though. We oh, have, yeah. We have Jill on stage at the cabaret. Lucifer and Mazakin are visible watching in the audience, and she's watching with concern. She's basically just, like, creating doves out of a flash of light in her hand. Yeah. So, despite the fact that we last left her sprawled on the floor, Jill is up and running again. She is heading in the back of the cabaret, the stage door. Jill Presto never missed a gig in her life, and she's not about to start now. <laughs> and she sees Sola. Whoa, what's this? Who said you could pinch hit for me? Jill, you came back. I thought Metz said... Go fuck yourself, Sola. It's the only option you haven't tried, isn't it? Yeah, there that is again. Come sniffing around my job again, I'll strip your assets. Yeah, just, like, what an ass. So, to Hugo's surprise, the assistant who joins him on stage is Jill, after all. Hi, remember me? But before we get on to the show itself, we get a little bit of a flashback, establishing where Jill comes from. Yeah, whatever the Bossanos did to her, it kind of seems like they're triggering this. So we learn essentially that looks like both of her parents were performers in Vegas back in the 70s. Yeah, uh, we see a framed picture of them here with the caption, Vegas 1979, got the world on a string. And then we see teenage or early 20s Jill looking very rebellious, leather jacket, spiky hair. She's just announced that she wants to go to stage school and her mom thinks that's the worst goddamn idea in the world. Christ, you're your father's daughter, aren't you? Follow the dream, even if it takes you up someone else's ass. 
Then we cut back to a further flashback within the flashback. Las Vegas, 1979. Jill at the age of maybe 10. Finding her father having hanged himself in the bathroom. The world on a string. And then we cut back to the present day with Jill framed in this bit of rope that's hanging down from the curtains. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, yeah, we now cut to Lucifer. He's doing a few of his favorite things. Walking while looking awesome and having Mazikeen as an audience while he hears himself talk. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, talk about your precision knife throws. <laughs> Mazakin, it's worth noting, has a card tucked into her rope belt. That is the invitation to the cabaret that Jill gave her earlier. Yeah, he strides into the cabaret like he owns the fucking place. Even though they have a pass, he chooses to give Lottie severe stomach pain in order to be admitted. Yeah, I guess that's something he did, because we see him sort of hold his finger up here. For a second, I thought that she had seen Mazakin's face, which has sort of been established, causes people to have bouts of nausea at best. Yeah, he clearly does a little bit of magic on her, and Mazakin kind of drops the pass as they walk in. So, guess who's here to enjoy the cabaret also? It's the, it's the fucking Nazi Nazis. Gunter says that he got the pass from some Oistdeutsch slog I was poking. Mm. Oistdeutsch means East German? Sure. And slag... This is a grating term for a woman, and poking is an unpleasant term for sex. Right. He taunts Carl. You want another bottle? Carl is obviously stricken with guilt here. Christ, Gunther, don't. All right, so they're doing the bird trick again, except this time, as Jill whisks the lid off of the dinner plate, instead of a live dove. Go ahead, Jill. Why not? You can't hold it in much longer anyway. What bursts from the plate is a giant phoenix made of flame. I do like this little insert panel of Jill's face with the bosonos etched across her skin. Yeah, Jill's kind of resolved face. <laughs> the one Nazi with a swastika tattoo on his forehead is like, Fuck man, that was pretty impressive. Carl excuses himself to piss. Except he's not really going to piss. He's sufficiently guilt-stricken now that he's decided that it's not okay to beaten horribly maimed people. Yeah, he decides to call an ambulance for Jayesh. Yeah. He tries to give directions, the directions are insufficiently specific, so he says, fuck it, I will take you to the place. And now we see Jill's magic show gone completely off the rails. Yeah, she's doing all kinds of wild stuff, materializing visions grand and bizarre. I don't know if she's conjuring this shit or just illusions, but... It's pretty wild, and it's like the most kaleidoscopic use of color we've seen in the entire book, which has something of an effect. What's this a reference to, the moon with the rocket sticking out of it? Oh, yeah, that is the 1902 film A Trip to the Moon. Yeah, Hugo's not loving it. Mainly it seems like because he's been upstaged. Right. Mazakin draws her knife. But Lucifer tells her to wait. Let her spend the coin of their power as prodigally as she likes. When she's done to small change, then we'll move. Jill is mad with power. Right, and she also kind of gains the ability to see everybody's lives, their pasts and their futures. Right. She can see their lives, the past straight like a wire, the future branching into a million filaments. What they are and were and could be. I like that because it kind of comes back to the world on a string. 
which was okay. established earlier. So that's a nice little piece of writing there. One of the things she sees is Hugo choking on tears of anger and humiliation. He's thinking, the best performance of my life, again and again. Yeah. Metz is hoping he can find a way to recreate and profit from this show. And then she sees into the minds or destinies of the Nazis. Right. She sees what they did to her friend Jayesh. Yeah, I wish that it was a little clearer that she isn't just seeing them do something horrible here, but that she literally recognizes Jayesh and knows who they did this to. You bastards! You rotten, cowardly scumbags! How could you? How could you do that? Well, let's see how you like it. And what she does here is that she looks into the future and finds a possible death for each of them, and then summons it to the present. Yeah, Uh, brings their destinies to fruition right now. One guy gets in a car crash on the Autobahn without a seatbelt. Another one gets his throat slashed in a fight with a rival gang. And the third one, Gunter, well, he has a stroke. She taunts him, uh, don't you speak the language? Because he is unable to speak. Right. Not sure why it occurs to me in this particular context, but the sort of using a stroke as a bit of ironic justice or punishment just doesn't appeal to me. Sure. It seems kind of strokes happen to people. Many people know somebody who has suffered one. So it it just doesn't ring as uh, poetic justice to me. It rings a little cruel. Not to the Nazis so much as to the audience. Lots of people have had a car accident too, though. Well, that's true. And that didn't bother you as much. Maybe because it specifies that he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Well, I guess it doesn't bother me when, when characters get killed as much as, like, the idea of punishing him by destroying his ability to interact with his own body. Okay. I was not bothered by it. I kind of liked... I liked seeing the Nazis get their comeuppance, and I liked the way that she did it by, like, fetching their deaths from the future. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a cool concept. But in any case, Lucifer has had enough, too. Reveal yourselves. I didn't come here to watch a puppet show. Yeah, so the boss knows come blasting out of jail. Meanwhile, Carl has found his way back to where Jayesh is still unconscious, with Ross written on the wall over his head. And a swastika. And he is caught here by Melios. Jayesh, there's an ambulance coming. They're going to help you, man. I'm just... I'm just going to... Wait for them, out on the street. Show them the way. Ah, Mr. Weiss, I didn't see you. Could almost be your motto, couldn't it, Carl? I had my eyes closed, so I didn't see you. How could you miss so much? How could you fail to see even yourself? And he beats up Carl pretty good here. Yeah, and then he has a line here. I don't need to warn you where your need for forgiveness will bring you. Atonement is at best a journey of uncertain length and unknown destination. But so is revenge, of course. We both embrace our own destruction. Goodbye, Carl. Yeah, Melios manifests his wings and flies away, apparently intent on getting revenge against Lucifer. That's another hint that, like, okay, can the angels always see the future? Because he seems to have an idea what's going to happen to Carl in the future. Anyway, the ambulance shows up back in the club. That one, Mazakin. Now, Mazakin makes a very impressive knife throw and pins the Lightbringer card to the wall. Nothing human could move so fast. The cards rise like startled birds. <laughs> Something tears inside her. Soft membrane sliced clean through. Cold metal sheathes itself in her gut. She tries to scream, but there's no air left. 
Right. Jill feels the knife as if it pierced her and collapses. The Bossanos decide to take this opportunity to negotiate. They want the Lightbringer card back. It's one of their family. I am considering whether or not to pardon you. In the meantime, I require a divination. You will oblige me. Your will be done, Dreadlord, as it no longer is in hell or heaven. And now we get Innocence's six-card spread, Innocence's tarot reading for Lucifer, which I don't know a ton about where this series is going, but I imagine this predicts an awful lot of it. So, the first one is Lucifer himself. The Lord of No Realm, the apostate, pinned on a dilemma. God holds the door for you like a fawning footman, but where does it lead? Next, the card that crosses him, the mountain. This points to his need for wings, which are in the House of Windowless Rooms. This is a second reference we've gotten to the House of Windowless Rooms. When we heard it before, it apparently referred to the Shinto Land of the Dead. Right. Next, the card that raises Lucifer. Innocence itself. Not the character Innocence, but an Innocent. The child that lights the way for you is someone quite different, and you'll have to return the favor. Next, the card that casts him down. That is the fool. If Lucifer steps through the door, she says, it will close behind him forever. Then the card where he begins, the wheel. Treading the same ground again, for the wheel has come full circle, a revolution. And this, Lucifer, this is where he ends. She holds up the final card, the tower. None too soon, either. Skip the melodrama and go straight to the point. He hands back the Lucifer card. Take him, and make sure that you play your games far away from me. They leave? Innocence approaches Jill again. Time for you to decide, Jill. Yes or no? Yes or no to what? I don't understand. To us. We can only stay if you accept us of your own free will. It's a bargain. A contract. You've seen the smallest glimpse of what we can give you. Success and fame will come to you without your needing to try. Oh, and you'll live forever, if that's any incentive. Say yes, daughter of Eve. Let us live in you. And what can she say? The taste in her mouth is the taste of twelve wasted years, climbing, falling, like her father dangling on a string. The sound she hears is her mother's voice, telling her she'll never amount to jack shit. Uh, you're supposed to read it like Mike Hammer. Yeah, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> now at the hospital, Carl is met by Jayesh's parents. Yeah, he asks if Jayesh will wake up. They don't know that he'll ever wake up because there's bleeding in his brain. But the parents are nonetheless very grateful that Carl found him and saved him. Our son would be dead already had you not found him. Bless you for that. Bless you. Oof. Yeah. What a twist the... of the knife. That's got to be a tough thing to hear. Yeah, most I'm, definitely. I'm not feeling any sympathy for Carl at all in this case. But I do have to say that like knowing he's responsible for what happened to Jayesh, being like thanked by his mother like that is quite a brutal twist. Yeah, well, it's pretty much the only punishment that we see him get here. Even though Melios had made a comment about, like, where the road of forgiveness will lead you. Yeah, maybe we'll see more. I don't know. Melios did beat him up, but yeah, he gets off relatively easy for what he did. Yeah, I kind of expected it to be a thing where, like, he leads the ambulance to Jayesh, but gets arrested because he's there. Right. And there's no, there's no comeuppance that direct. So as Jayesh's parents go into the room to see him, Carl is left standing here alone in the hospital hallway. Sometime later, Jill comes to visit Jayesh. Yeah. Two of them are dead, Jay, and one's quadriplegic. The one outside? Well, trust me when I tell you he'll get his some other way. 
In the meantime, keep an eye out for me. I'll be hard to miss. She kisses him goodbye, and as she walks away, we see she is accompanied by Innocence. She took the bosnos back. All done? You've got me cold, haven't you? You can see the inside of my head, so you know which way I'd jump all along. We know which way everyone jumps. Those who believe in free will make the best puppets of all. Back at Lux, Lucifer has the letter again. He's realized that it's a one-way ticket. Right, it gives him access, but it'll lock behind him. I don't know if I'm more offended by the deceit or the insult to my intelligence. So he gets Mazakin's knife, he holds up the letter in the air, and rather than using it, he cuts it in half. He is no longer the Lord of Hell. He is no longer the Agent of Heaven. What is he now? What name denotes his function? He is Lucifer, the Lightbringer. So he rips open the letter and the space behind it, creating a glowing doorway that hangs in the air. Try closing it now without unmaking the rest of your creation. Mazakin says something. Will they come? Of course they'll come. I'm depending on it. It would hardly be an apocalypse without angels and trumpets. Ooh, so he's got a trap for the angels and is maybe going to end the world. What an asshole. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I obviously appreciate that, like, one of the consistent features of this comic is that we do not forget that Lucifer is the devil, a bad guy. He's not becoming a fully heroic and sympathetic character. We are frequently reminded that he is a selfish jerk. He's much more of a dick in this story arc even than he was in Sandman Presents Lucifer. Yeah, he's a far bigger dick than we've ever seen him so far. Mm -hmm. That and the fact that he never really is seriously challenged by anything kind of made his storyline in this unappealing to me. Okay. What I enjoyed about this story arc was the drama between Carl and Jayesh, some of the characterization of Jill, although I don't... I don't love that ultimately, like, she was just weak and, like, what choice did she have but to make her deal with the Bosanos. Okay. You know? But I liked some of the Jill stuff leading up to that. And, of course, I liked the unexpected Mike Hammer narration. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to keep an eye out to see if the narration remains as overwrought in subsequent issues. As purple? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think Jill is an interesting concept, and I would imagine one that they intend to come back to. This stage magician possessed by this magical deck of cards. Right. And she seems like she's being set up to appear in, in future stories. Yeah, and maybe Carl is too, because mm -hmm. we're told that he's going to get his. And Melios, of course, also will come back. He's sworn revenge on Lucifer. How much of this do you suppose is Mike Carey just kind of filling out his, his supporting cast for the story he's going to be writing? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And Jill in particular almost feels like she could be the main character of a series and is just being set up as a one-off. Like, here's another cool idea for a series I had. Right. We get some sort of hint, I think, of the of the subject matter and future tone of this series as it he's dealing with another ancient with whom he has a past, another angel. Well, when you say that she could be the star of her own series, I think that that can be a way of writing a series that works very well. Okay. Is to come up with, like, three characters 
all of whom are theoretically strong enough to hold their own book and then like let them bounce off of each other. Yeah. That's what Preacher is a lot of the time. Yeah. It's what, you know, some of the better X-Men runs are. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I have to agree that I enjoyed the human drama, but at the same time, it felt a little out of place, a little underwhelming, a little incomplete. Yeah. Like, in, in Sandman, we often spend a lot of time with human viewpoint characters, but whether their story is completed or interrupted or destroyed by the introduction of the Endless, we do seem to get usually a complete story for them. Yeah. I, I don't know how much different is it really, because there were times that I was very unsatisfied with the fates of Sandman human supporting characters, too. Yeah. Rose, I kind of felt, never reached her full potential. I mean, Wanda, for fuck's sake. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so maybe it's to some extent par for the course that the human characters are left a little hanging. Yeah, and just not, again, like, it seems like they're going to recur, so it's hard to judge yeah. based on just this. But certainly Jill doesn't get a conclusion that's worthy of her, and Carl does not get a Carl does not get a comeuppance that's worthy of what he did. Yeah, that's right. So Do you feel kinda like the whole, you know, neo Nazi bastards plot is here like mainly to include that piece of real life politics? Like and is that okay, like just to have that subplot? as a nod to the fact that this shit really goes on. Well, I'm fine with it mainly because I think it's the most compelling thing in this story arc. Okay. Is the kind of, like, the neo-Nazi guy, like, one foot in both worlds. Yeah. You know, and the gay immigrant character who's yeah. kind of struggling with his desires. Yeah, he has a difficult path to walk himself because his parents have a really strict expectation of him and he clearly wants something else. Yeah. We didn't really talk about it, but he also wants to leave the shop and go to university. Right. Maybe. Yeah, I guess, on the one hand, like, surely there are plenty of stories that you can tell set in Germany without <laughs> people encountering Nazis. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, maybe it's a bit stereotypical. You know, I've seen plenty of German films. Yeah. Where... <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't so much concerned about that as just the fact that that story in particular seems to have very little to do with Lucifer in the end. Uh, yeah. Which, it, as you said, you found it more interesting than Lucifer's side of the plot. Well, the kind of question is, like, what kind of book does this want to be? Yes. Right? And if it wants to be horror in the vein of, like, Hellblazer horror... Yeah. Where, you know, the petty hatreds and character flaws of the human characters are where a lot of the scariest stuff comes from. I think that that is what is starting to take take shape here. Mm -hmm. But Lucifer is not like a game participant in that. Whenever Lucifer's on the page, it's a book about how cool Lucifer is, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that the comparison to Hellblazer is a really good point. That subplot really feels like something that that would be in Hellblazer. And this story in general feels more like Hellblazer than, well, than like Sandman. Right. Yeah, it's true. So I, I think that this, as a as a first story arc, it's kind of shaky at best. And okay. we're going to have to see, again, like what kind of book this shapes up into. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about art for a minute here. Okay. Worth noting that this is not... Basically, this is not what the series is going to look like for most of its run. Right. 
Yeah. Awesome artist Peter Gross is going to take over sooner or later. Mm -hmm. And I think I think his work is incredible. This art is it's really not bad. It has a couple of moments where it really falls down. Yeah. We discussed the end of issue two in particular. But I do think it kind of does well with like we have lots of characters who are normal people, they're not wearing superhero outfits. Yeah. And they all look distinct from each other. Yeah. Especially like Jill, Lottie, and Sola yeah. are all brunette women wearing leather lingerie. <laughs> and they all look very distinct from each other. Yeah. So I, I think that in that sense, the art is good. The character designs, the expressive faces, that is all fine. Weirdly, for a comic book, it seems like most of the time when the art falls down in this story arc, it's when fantastical things are happening. Okay. Yeah. We should also talk about the character designs of the tarot card characters, because those all look really good, too. Yeah, Innocence is effectively creepy. The Hanged Man is kind of amusing in his way, just kind of dangling into the scene, making wry comments. Just hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> the bits where I think the art worked well, uh, I liked Melios's library a lot. And I kind of wish the layouts would have given more time to dwell on that, but it looks cool. And the shot of the ink bleeding out of all the books was pretty effective. Not the biggest fan of the way Chris Weston draws Lucifer. No. I do think that Lucifer kind of looked better in the miniseries. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's not so much a matter of art, I guess, as a matter of fashion. Okay. Because I think he just dressed in a very, like, classic style in Sandman and in Sandman Presents Lucifer. And you don't like him in his little, like, London racing jacket here. Yeah, he's he's wearing more kind of anti-fashion here, and it's it makes him stick out a little bit in this comic book because everything else is so grounded, and he looks like a... He, he really reminds me of, like, Prez or, like, a Mike Allred design. <laughs> he does look kind of Mike Allred-ish. You're right. This, you know, this last panel... Lucifer framed by the doorway into we don't know what in his cool jacket is very comic book. Yeah, that's fair. So, before we finish up with this issue, Lucifer is the lamplighter of God. Fire is his domain. So, what was the best burn in this issue? <laughs> <laughs> or these three issues, I should say. And we didn't do this last week. I would say the best burn in the Sandman miniseries is his comment about the wine. His oh, line yeah, to, that his, was great. His line to Amenadiel. That's an 80-year-old Jeannot Armagnac. If I'd known you were going to waste it on melodrama, I'd have given you the 78. Yeah, that's a good line. So in this story arc, my favorite burn comes from Metz, actually. And okay. he's burning someone who is no longer present. Yeah. But he's saying, after just after Jill has stormed out, go into the office and type up a termination letter. And leave some spaces for adjectives. <laughs> that was like Schrodinger's burn. We don't know what the burn will be yet. <laughs> right. I am fond of this one as Lucifer is discussing the letter he has been given by heaven. In any dealings with heaven, I'm inclined to dissect the gift horse and have a good look at its guts. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. I would ask if there's a... <laughs> is there an... Oh, that's Satan moment. <laughs> Where Lucifer just, you know, just reminds us that he's kind of a dick. But it's kind of all over it's in this the whole story. Issue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole damn book. 
Well, join us in our next Lucifer issue for Lucifer versus Steve Rogers, Captain America. But first... What? <laughs> okay, that's not what happens. <laughs> our next Lucifer episode is Born with the Dead. But first, join us next week for Hellblazer as John steps into the confessional. Word Guides is written and performed by Eric and myself. I produce the show, Eric Handles Social Media, and our theme song is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Yeah, including full runs of Sandman and Preacher. We are very proud of the work that we did recapping Sandman and Preacher, and we think you should check it out if you haven't heard it yet. If you want to get in touch with us, and we certainly hope you do, you can reach us by email, vertiguys at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Vertiguys. And you can find me at BlankCastSean. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Vertiguys. And let's see real quick if there are any new reviews on the Apple Podcasts app. There are not. And that's too bad, because I was all ready to read it out loud and give somebody a moment of validation. Yeah, not to mention the validation that we would feel. Mutual validation. And the fact that reviews help other people to find the show... But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Batman Annual Number 4, written by Tom King. Art by Jorge Fornes. Yeah. Entitled Every Day. Every goddamn day with this shit. <laughs> that was a really interesting comic book. It's not what I expected at all. I mean, when there's an annual that's by the guy who's writing the ongoing. I guess he's not writing the ongoing anymore. But he still is. His last issue is... Still a month or two away. Okay. But when there's an annual by the guy who's writing the ongoing, I expect it to just be like a big fucking, you know, 45, 50 page story about the stuff that's been going on in the comic book. Just a season finale, basically. This is something completely different and weird. Yeah, Tom King has done a pretty good job of making his annuals kind of unrelated to his ongoing story. Uh -huh. Not unrelated. Annual 2 was Date Nights and Last Rites, okay. uh, which was like a story about Batman and Catwoman when they're old. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, which is kind of very tied into his run, because his run is very much about the Batman-Catwoman love story. Yeah. So, yeah, that one you kind of needed to understand, like, the relationship that he's built between them. But the other three, I think, are all kind of things like this, where he just tells cool stories. So, I... Don't even remember the details of half of the weird stories in here, but, like, it's all in the frame story of Alfred writing in his diary about the things that Batman has undergone. And he goes through some incredibly weird shit, and it's like a different genre every day. Right. Uh, most of which are not, you know, Batman, the genre. <laughs> most of which are not, like, semi-gritty crime stories with supervillains in Gotham City. Right. Well, it's like one day he's stopping bank robbers... And the next day, he's fighting some kind of supernatural monster. And then the next day, he's, you know, he's doing some really small thing. Like, yeah. you know, just helping a random citizen. And then the next day after that, he has to fly to the moon. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the only time a supervillain, or at least an established Batman supervillain, appears in this story is the last page he fights Joker and Harley Quinn. As like a throwaway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a part, there's a whole sequence where he's, Riding a horses on the rooftops because there are these there are these bank robbers who brought horses so they could horse jump across the rooftops and get away. And Batman, of course, not only defeats the robbers but saves the horses. Right. 
And there's a part where he has to, like, teleport to another dimension to confront a god who wants to destroy humanity. Oh, and yeah. persuade him that humanity is worth saving. That was great. Which he does so essentially by saying, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'll fuck you up. It's like if instead of what Doctor Strange did with Dormammu, like, yeah. where he trapped him in the time loop, yeah. if he had just, like, strode up to him and been like, well, I'm, I'm Doctor Strange, so I'm gonna kick your ass. But... That wouldn't have been convincing. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Strange ain't Batman. No, Doctor Strange ain't Batman. And that's not a very Batman story, but that I think seems to be the point. It's like, Batman is all things to all people. Batman fits into any genre. You can do anything with Batman. And that's kind of a really nice thing for, you know, a long-term ongoing author of Batman to say is, like, this is the way I'm doing it, but there are a million other ways that are valid. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then the final sequence of pages begins with a nine panel grid and then cuts down to an eight and a seven and a six and a five until it's one page or no i'm sorry it's the opposite way it starts as a one and then it works up to a nine panel right and it it ends on the nine panel grid with the title and credits interspersed with his fight with joker and harley quinn and that's when we get the title which tells us you know batman is batman every day and he's indeed he's had an adventure every single day that alfred has covered in this diary yeah i love when you get to the end of this book, I like the earlier stories that are gone into in a little more detail. I especially like the way he fights the MMA guy. Yeah. But I love how at the end you're just getting one panel at a time of him doing various weird things. By the way, that's like the whole thing in and of itself is that there's this MMA guy who keeps challenging Batman because he figures he's the best in the world and he'll prove it by beating Batman and Batman won't fight until it comes out that he's beating his wife and he makes a comment in the press like... I'm the best. I'm unbeatable. That's justice. So Batman enters the ring and beats the shit out of him. Right. (laughs) Which means Batman can fight the best MMA fighter in the world and win. But yeah, then we get to this, like, this really reminds me of, like, some Neil Gaiman shit. How it's just like, cool idea. Moving on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, one day he helps an old lady across the street. The next day he fights another guy dressed as Batman. (laughs) The day after that, he's on a football field (laughs) running the football well, as we're closing in on the end, like, it, it goes from full-on stories to one-sentence stories. One day, the monsters appeared. And then finally, it's just dates and events. Just dates and images. Right. Good stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there are, like, in-context Batman epics that tell a really detailed story that plays on his ongoing continuity and the character development that has built up with him and his rogues gallery and his supporting cast for 50 years. And then there's something like this that's just, like, a meditation on the concept of Batman as a pop culture figure. Right. And it works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a really neat comic book. I can enjoy that kind of show. Don Cheadle's House of Lies okay. was that kind of show. It was like, you know, it was just awful people screwing each other over. And I thought that that was a pretty enjoyable, like, dark comedy show. Oh, footnote here. So there's an actress named Valerie Curry. Okay. Who I am most familiar with because she plays... No, Car- you're thinking of, no. uh, you're no. thinking of X-Factor's government contact. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie Cooper. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Valerie Cooper is the CIA agent whose cover was blown by the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> That's Valerie Plain. <laughs> Are you sure you're thinking of the barbarian woman that Conan has sex with? <laughs> That's Valerie. <laughs> 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 